Amen. Let's pray together. And I'm going to talk to you about the examples of two people that Paul holds up, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And uh, it's good stuff. Let's, let's pray. Father, we just thank you right now for your blessing on the word of God. Lord, we know we're approaching not just any book, but this is your book, literally your book, inspired by God. It is from heaven to us. It's your love letter to us. And it's the, it is the word of God. Lord, we know it's not a book containing words from God or a word from God, but it's the word of God. So, Lord, speak it to us tonight. We need to be edified, strengthened, exhorted, and comforted, and encouraged in the Lord. Now, breathe this prayer with me, church, and say, Lord, tonight, renew my mind. Teach me. I receive your word in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him it's going to be good tonight. Amen. Amen. All right. Uh, Last time, now we're in chapter 2. Now, how many of you read ahead of time? You went ahead and read. Went ahead and read. Anybody? Chapter 2? Well, there's a few. That's honesty. That's encouraging. Amen. All right. Last time we closed out with chapter 2, verse 13, which describes how God gives both the desire and the power to do his will. I believe one of the earmarks of somebody truly saved is they have a desire to please God. Because let's face it, in the natural, left to ourselves, we have no desire to please God. It's when God gives us a new nature that we really want to walk pleasing with the Lord. Amen? So he gives us power to do the will of God. Now, in verse 14, the apostle tackles again uh, the issue of disunity and strife in the church. Can you believe there was disunity and strife in the church back then? Aren't you glad it doesn't happen anymore? Right? Yeah. <laughs> Wahaha, that's really funny. Um, but so Paul is dealing with it, and what he writes lets us know how to deal with it in our day. And he says, do all things without complaining and disputing. Now, that's what I love about Paul. He makes it easy. Do all things without complaining and disputing. Try that for a week. I, I challenge you to try com- not complaining for one week. Amen? How many of you think you, you would bat a thousand there? Not complaining one time for a whole week. Right? Okay. That would not be very easy. Now, complaining comes from a discontented soul. And so does arguing. It's one of the sins that grieves the Holy Spirit so very much. The Bible says, grieve not the Holy Spirit, whereby you are sealed to the day of redemption. So complaining grieves the Spirit of God. It's one of the things that just grieves him. And you can feel the grieving on the inside of you. If you go into a real complaining fit, uh, you never feel better. You always feel worse. And after, and why do you feel worse? Well, One reason is because the Spirit of God in you is grieved. I think often Christians will feel a little bit blue and sometimes wonder why they feel blue. Well, sometimes you're in a battle and sometimes you're just kind of maybe tired, but sometimes you've grieved the Holy Spirit and don't know it because he lives inside of us. So grieve not the Holy Spirit. Now, complaining 
is, is very, very detrimental to our walk. It's what ultimately kept the entire first generation of Hebrews from the promised land. Imagine that. They dug their own grave with their tongue. They didn't need a shovel. They had their tongue. And they dug their own grave. Uh, they were not allowed to cross over into the promised land, ultimately because of complaining. They were chronic complainers. They made Moses finally say to God, God, kill me. Right? Because they were complaining all the time. He said, how do you expect me to deal with all these people that are complaining all the time? So they literally missed out on their destiny because of complaining. Uh, I could spend more time on that, but we need to move along. Suffice it to say, try not to complain. Paul says, we Christians should be isolated from it. Why should we be isolated from it? Why should we try and work at and strive and and, and reach for never complaining or, or disputing. Here's why. That you may become blameless and harmless. Children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Notice how he defines us. Among whom you shine as lights in the world. Now, would you agree with me tonight that we live in a perverse and crooked generation? Come on, everybody. I mean, is it, is it at a place you never thought you would see? Am I alone feeling that way? All right. Now, what does he say? So I want you to notice that when, you're, when you, you as a believer are in a crooked and perverse generation, you are to shine like lights in the world. But if you're walking around complaining and disputing, it's hard to shine. Now, the word blameless means without reproach. Harmless means simple. Now, that doesn't mean dumb as in simple as in dumb, but it means we're to be unfamiliar with these things. We're to be innocent of these things. We're, we're not to, to be really versed in complaining and disputing and arguing all the time. We are, to be, we are to be innocent of it, simple concerning it. It shouldn't be happening with us. The more we grow in the Lord, the less and less those things should be happening less complaining, and less disputing. It's because we're to shine as lights in the world. We live in a perverted, depraved, and rebel culture. And watch this. When a non-Christian in that culture sees a professing Christian, now I'm just going where Paul went. Get ready to grab your toes. I had to grab mine before I came and taught this. Uh, but here's what Paul is saying. When a non-Christian in that perverted, depraved, and rebel culture sees a professing Christian at work or at home who's argumentative, hard to get along with, worldly in his conversation and behavior, using profanity, uh-oh, using profanity. Well, I just use profanity because I'm a good old boy. No, you're not a good old boy if you're saved. You're not a good old boy. You are a brand-new believer. Amen, Pastor Jeff. Don't shout me down, church. Okay? So, using profanity, telling off-color jokes, gossiping about others in the workplace, and so on and so forth, losing your temper, the unbeliever is going to be utterly unimpressed with your claim that you know Jesus and he's made a difference in your life. Okay? Now, okay. I'm not perfect. I'm as flawed as anybody in this room. And I've made plenty of mistakes. And I'll make more. 
Isn't that a great confession? But I know I will. Of course I will. But here's the deal. Something has happened in the church. I'm going to say in the last uh, 20 to 30 years, I've been preaching a long time. I can look back and just look at what it was and what it is. Something has kind of infiltrated the church, a, a sort of a thought that, that um, I can be saved, but then not live according to the book. Or I can p- cherry pick what I want to live by and ignore the rest. Put another way, we have, we have adopted a type of situational ethic in the church that, that I'm going to follow the word based on my situation. If my situation is advantageous to me following the word, then I'll do it. But if it's something where it requires sacrifice or me bending my knee to the lordship of Christ, um, crucifying my nasty flesh, then, then I choose not to go there. And after all, God understands because me and him, we got a good thing going. But here's the deal. The minute we're saved, the Bible is our book. It's our book. It's our roadmap. It's a map. Now, before there were GPSs um, and you had to follow those terrible maps, some of you are, are old enough to remember this, these these. Terribly complicated. I mean, just, just thinking back to these maps gives me the creeps. I mean, anybody that could use them had a genius level IQ. I mean, they were just hard to follow. But when you were having to follow these maps, let's say you were going from here to New York. Long trip. And, and so you've got this road map. You don't have a GPS talking to you, telling you which way to turn. You're having to follow the road map. All right? And, and so you take off and you head down a certain highway. And the map is telling you, you go, you, and you're seeing it. It's that red line. You follow that highway, and at this juncture, you're going to turn, and that juncture, you're going to make another turn, and here, you're going to pick up another highway. And you're knowing that this is a complicated journey. So I ask you, how often during any given day when you're making that long journey, are you going to be looking at that map to be sure you're going the right way? I would contend with you, you're going to be looking all the time. Because last thing you want to do is get off and go hundreds of miles out of your way and lose all that gas and all that time because you didn't follow that map. All right, we're in a lifelong journey with Christ. And we need to every day, that's why every day we need to be looking at the road map and saying, am I on the right road? Am I making the right decisions? Am I living in a way that pleases God? Am I doing this right and that right? And am I making the right turn? And am I avoiding this like I should and avoiding that like I should? But see, in the church, something has happened where uh, we've just decided that certain parts of it just don't apply. And they do. The Bible is our roadmap. And let me tell you, if you don't follow it closely, you're going to end up 100 miles off and wonder how you got there. Have you ever woke up and said, how in the world did I get this far from God? Come on. How did I get this far from God? Have you ever floated on a raft out in the ocean and said, well, I'm just going to kick back and, and take a little snooze and enjoy this beautiful weather? It's cool. The shore is right there. And, and you sit up 10 minutes later, and you're so far out, you're looking for shark fins. You go, how did I get way out here? Because the current, the undertow took you there. Well, this world has an undertow. And it will carry you where you don't want to go if you don't stay real close to the road map. Amen? So Paul says, holding fast 
holding tight the word of life so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ that I have not run in vain or labored in vain. Holding forth the word of life, the testimony of Jesus is the way we're to carry ourselves on this dark planet. Paul says, be sure your walk comes before your talk. If you do that, Paul says, I didn't minister in vain. Amen? Because folks, let me tell you the truth. Whole denominations are adrift out there that used to be the ground and pillar of the truth. They used to stay with the scriptures. They used to preach the cross and the blood and salvation and heaven and hell and everything. And now they're completely adrift. And how did they get there? They put the word of God out. I'm speaking to a group of young nationals tomorrow morning uh, who've been brought in from countries around the world. And, and I've been asked to speak an hour to them. And, I, and I'm going to tell them. First thing I'm going to tell them, I'm giving you a preview. First thing I'm going to tell them, these are preachers. Some of them are church planters. Some of them are evangelists. But all of them are, are young movers and shakers. And I'm going to start at 9 o'clock in the morning, and I've got at least an hour. The very first thing I'm going to tell them, lessons from the trenches. Never, 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 never depart from the word of God. Never, never leave it, never depart from the word of God, because the minute you do, you're going to start a slow drift. Amen. So every day, and I've been preaching, I've been pastoring 35 years. I've been preaching since I was 19 and I need to be in the word now more than ever in my whole life. I mean, that's the way I feel. So first thing in the morning, I grab my coffee that God made on the eighth day and he said, it is good. And I go straight to my Bible, and I'm, and I'm reading through the Bible in a year, every year. I do it, and I'm not patting myself on the back or saying, aren't I super spiritual? No, no, I do it because I know better not to. See, I, I've got to keep my nose in the book, and so do you. Amen? Verses 17 to 18, he says, I will rejoice even if I lose my life. Pouring it out like a liquid offering to God, just like your faithful service is an offering to God. Listen to this man of God, the Apostle Paul. I'm going to say it again. I think the greatest Christian ever lived. Greatest Christian that ever lived. Look what he says concerning the possibility he may lose his life. I rejoice if I lose my life for the cause of Christ. How many people do you know that would say that? If I told you tonight, you're losing your life for the cause of Christ this time next week, how many of you would proceed to have a nervous breakdown? But Paul said, I rejoice. And this is just where he was. I'm, I'm pouring my life out like a liquid offering to God, just like your faithful service is an offering to God. And I want all of you to share that joy. Yes, you should rejoice, and I will share your joy. So Paul was always ready to give his life in the cause of Christ. He was always ready. He viewed it as an offering to the God who had given his only son to die for him. He tells the Philippians he wants them to share this joy of his, and he in turn would share their joy in Christ. He's literally telling this church that he birthed, I, I'm joyful about the possibility of losing my life for the cause of Christ if God so deems fit to bring me there, and I want you to rejoice with me. That's a hard call because they loved him. But here again is why we call this the letter of joy because Paul's talking about joy all the time and he's talking about joy from a Roman prison. How do you do that? 
You do that by being really close to the Lord Jesus. Paul had a stake in the Philippians as his spiritual children, and they had a stake in him as their apostle, whose ministry they financially supported. We're going to talk about that more in a moment. So the apostle of joy says to them, I'll share your joy, you share in mine. Then next, after first holding up Christ as an example of how he wants them to live, the attitude he wants them to cultivate, he holds up another example of the kind of Christian uh, uh, service we should all aspire to in the person of Timothy. He's going to hold up Timothy as a second example. He's dealing with three examples, Jesus, Timothy, and Epaphroditus. He's encouraging the Philippians, let me tell you how I want you to walk. Instead of disputing with each other, being argumentative, having strife, he said, let me give you three premier examples of how to live. Last week, we showed his example of Christ. Now tonight, he's holding up Timothy. Look at verse 19. If the Lord Jesus is willing, I hope to send Timothy to you soon for a visit Then he can cheer me up by telling me how you are getting along. Now, a little background about Timothy. Timothy was Paul's child in the faith. Most likely, he was saved during Paul's first missionary journey. His mother and grandmother were both model Jewish women, and his father was Greek, Gentile. His father apparently died when he was very young. So he lost his dad young, Timothy did. So his mother and grandmother had raised him, and they gave him a really good working knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures that Paul brags on them about in one of his letters to Timothy. Timothy, it turns out, became one of Paul's most frequent companions, starting with his second missionary journey. He was with him all the way to the end. He became the first pastor of the church at Ephesus, this Timothy did, and according to Nicephorus and That's a later Roman emperor, and that's all you need to know about Nicephorus. But in his writings, we are told Timothy was clubbed to death at a feast of Diana for denouncing its immorality. So Timothy was martyred. Timid Timothy, who Paul had to tell, hey, stir up the gift of God that's within you. God had given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and a sound mind. Come on, Timothy, don't be afraid. Don't be timid. Get with it. Preach the gospel. Do the work of an evangelist. I know you're a pastor, but don't forget to win souls. That Timothy took his father-in-the-face advice and preached so good, so hard, so boldly, They beat him to death, and he went to Jesus as a martyr. Think about that for a minute. I want to give you a little side note here. Isn't it interesting that we're told today uh, that Christians should not denounce the sins of our culture? I've been told that. I have been told that. Don't get up there and denounce the sins of the culture. You're going to turn some people off. And I said, what? Say that again. What do you mean? I'm going to turn them off. Was Jesus worried about that? And, and, and they said, because you're going to turn them off to the message of Christ. And after all, we shouldn't judge, which is a total misinterpretation of the Bible. Jesus told us to judge. He just said, use righteous judgment. When he says in Matthew 7, verse 1, don't judge lest you be judged, he's talking about the wrong kind of judgment. Don't judge hypocritically. If you're doing the same thing, don't judge somebody else for doing what you're doing. So that's the kind of judgment he told us not to do. But, but uh, we're supposed to judge righteously. 
Now, John the Baptist, I remind you, lost his head for calling out the sin of a politician, Herod's adultery. And Timothy was beat to death for calling out the immorality of his culture's idolatry. I wonder what John the Baptist and Timothy would say if you told them they should have stayed silent. Just a thought. I'm just throwing that out there. This has nothing to do really with the book of Philippians. This is free. I'll tell you, anytime you're told, don't share the word of God, keep your mouth shut, that is not the Holy Spirit. Nine times out of ten. Every once in a while, the Holy Spirit will say, hold back, wait for the best moment. But fear, intimidation are not from the Holy Spirit. Amen? Now, Paul proceeds to brag on Timothy's character. And look at verse 20. For I have no one like-minded. I'm going to send Timothy to you, Philippian church. And I've got no one like-minded who's going to sincerely care for your state. He loves you, and he really does love you. He really does care for you. Now, people who think like Paul are rare in any age. I, I don't think there's a person on the planet who would have Paul's depth of thought right now in our day and age. There's a lot of very, very spiritual people, but I would doubt there's a Paul anywhere on the planet right now. Apparently in all of Rome, think about this, Paul couldn't find one believer he could send to Philippi to check on their state, how they're doing. He couldn't find one believer in all the people he knew, all the people he wanted to Christ. He couldn't come up with one. Some had the giftedness, but not the time. Some had the talent and the time, but not the temperament. No one was as much like Paul as Timothy. I want you to say with me, it matters who you run with. Because who you run with is going to rub off on you. Because you see, here's Timothy. He's traveling with Paul everywhere. Paul's rubbing off on him. Paul's character, the way he looked at things, the way he talked, the way he walked with the Lord. uh, It's all being learned by Timothy. And so it ended up Timothy was about as close to Paul as you could find. And he said, here's one of the things that makes him a standout. He really naturally cares for the people. It's not pretense. It's not put on. He really cares for you, Philippian church. He wasn't a hireling doing it for the money. He was a Christ-like servant that loved the people. And then Paul drops a stinging indictment that I think is still true of today. Verse 21, all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. Now, I would say not everybody on the entire planet seeks their own. There's some crucified people that walk with the Lord. But I will say most people on the planet seek their own. They're out after number one, taking care of number one, following the desires of number one. Uh, um, they are the ones on the throne of their life. Most people are selfish by nature. So am I. And if I hadn't gotten saved, I would probably be supremely, uh, supremely selfish today. How many of you can say, when God got me, I was very selfish? How many of you can say, I deal with selfishness still? The rest of you, you lie, you're lying, sitting here lying. Come on, how many of you still deal with selfishness? Come on. Sure, sure you do. 
We have to crucify. And so God will, will, will bless you with all kinds of trying things in your life to help you learn to not be selfish. Now, the curse of the local church is and always has been a lack of commitment. Nobody has time to serve because they're all focused on things pertaining to themselves. The same faithful few do all the work. This, this is the testimony of all churches. You'll have a faithful few that do all the work. The majority of people just don't have time. They're, they're not committed. And I think particularly in our day, people are not committed to the local church. We see church more like a restaurant than we do a place where to get planted and rooted and serve. And, and some people literally wake up on a Sunday and go, well, where do you want to eat today? Well, I feel like hearing about faith, or I feel like hearing about worship, or I feel like hearing a good, strong message on the cross. And they'll just pick a church and go, and there, there's no commitment. There's no commitment. And it was true in uh, Paul's day. No wonder Jesus himself noted, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. The workers are few. There's a huge harvest, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, said Jesus, to send out workers into his harvest field. Amen. Amen. But Timothy was different. He was a man of total surrender and commitment, qualities that made him extremely valuable to Paul and to the cause of Christ. So Paul could hardly recommend him. He says in verse 22, you know his proven character that as a son with his father, he has served with me in the gospel. Timothy has proven what metal he's made of by going with me, says Paul, on the mission field, which never, never, never was easy. It was always very difficult because Paul caused riots and tumult everywhere that he went. So you had to be pleading the blood every step when you went with Paul. But Timothy had proved, hey, I'm with you. I love the Lord. If I lose my life, I lose it. But, but I'm not giving up. I'm not backing down. I'm not bending. I'm not breaking. I'm not rethinking this. I'm not second-guessing my commitment, Paul, to follow you. And Paul said, I watched him, and I see that his character is proven. Proven. Now, notice that Paul did not say that his preaching gift had been proven. He said, oh, he's a great preacher. I'm sending him your way. Is that what he said? No. Or did he say, hey, this guy has a great way with people, so I'm sending him your way. Did he say that? No. Or he's got real charisma. Oh, this guy's a spellbinder. Did he say that? No. He said, what matters most is why I'm sending him. His character is proven. He's true to his word. He loves the Lord. He's loyal. He's honest. He's faithful. He loves people. I've watched him. I've tracked him. I've watched him when he didn't know I was watching him. And I'm telling you, his character is proven like gold. I'm sending you gold in the person of Timothy. Amen. So he says in verse 23, therefore, I hope to send him at once. As soon as I see how it goes with me, but I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. Now, Paul says, if I can't come, the next best thing is Timothy, who I'm going to send very quickly. But I want you to notice something here. Notice what Paul says. I trust in the Lord that I myself shall, everybody say shall, shall also come shortly. Now, I want to point out something. Paul's close walk with the Lord enabled him to sense the Lord's will. He was close enough, walking in the spirit enough, no matter his circumstance. Remember, he's sitting in jail. 
He's chained to guards. Nero is in charge in an earthly way of his future, although God was ultimately in charge, of course. But, but there he is in prison, and yet he's, he's saying, you know, I'm praying all the time. I'm walking close with the Lord. I'm sensing I'm going to be released, and it's going to be me that gets to you. I'm going to come to you. I'm going to get out of this prison long enough to visit you. He writes to the Philippians with confidence. I trust in the Lord. I shall come. I shall come to you shortly. Now, when you read his second letter to Timothy, he doesn't have any such confidence. He's sensing something else. He's sensing the end has come. He said, I've fought a good fight. I've finished my course. I've kept the faith. And Timothy, you better get here before winter because I may not last through winter because the Holy Spirit is testifying to me. I'm about to come home. So his confidence in Philippians is the opposite in 2 Timothy. But in both situations, he's so close to the Lord, he has a sense of what God is going to do with him. See, it's valuable to walk in the Spirit. It's valuable to walk in the Spirit because you can sense what God is going to do with you. I mean, your, your, your ear is to the track. Some people, God leads them by mistake. They end up where God wants them by default. God forces them. In one of the Psalms, God says, don't be like the horse or as the mule that has to be held with a bit and a bridle or they're not going to go where you want them to go. Paul says, or God says, let me guide you with my eye. Let me lead you. And thank God we have the Holy Spirit residing in us. And that Spirit knows the will of God. The Holy Ghost knows the will of God. He prays for us according to the will of God for our life. Amen. Come on, everybody. So he, he has a sense of what God's going to do. And apparently, Paul did finally visit Philippi instead of sending Timothy after all. Because we know from his later letters to Timothy, he had been set free for a season just as he predicted. Amen. Have you ever been just sitting there or driving along or, you know, it's, it's weird. It happens to me a lot on my bike. I don't know why God talks to me on my bike. I don't know why. I can pray for an hour on my knees and get up and go for a bike ride and suddenly God will download something on me. He, he gave me this Sunday's message on my bike. Is that okay with you? Well, I don't sound very spiritual, Pastor Jeff. Well, it was after I'd prayed, but he just chose to wait until I'm pedaling down a road, sweating like a dog, and then he speaks to me. And, and the, the, the message began to move on me, and I knew it was where I was supposed to go this Sunday. But see, when you have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, as every Christian does, for if you don't have the Holy Spirit, you're not his right? So that Holy Spirit knows, Paul said in Romans, he knows the mind of the Lord regarding you. So I'm all the time praying, Lord, by the Spirit, show me the mind of the Lord for me. Show me the mind of the Lord. How many of you want to know the mind of the Lord for you on a daily basis? The mind of the Lord. Amen. The mind of the Lord. So after holding up Jesus and Timothy as examples, Paul now goes to the third example of the kind of character he wants the Philippians to walk in. The example of Epaphroditus. Look at verse 25. Yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker, and fellow soldier, 
Isn't it cool how you name people? Everybody say worker, brother, soldier. Paul knew, hey, man, we're in a a fight. We're in a battle. We're in a war. And he called really good Christians soldiers. Amen? So Epaphroditus is my brother, my fellow soldier, and fellow worker. But your messenger and the one who ministered to my need. Now, Paul has nothing but praise for this otherwise unknown Christian. Because you don't hear a lot about Epaphroditus. Timothy was Paul's son, and Epaphroditus was his brother. Now, it had been Epaphroditus that had been initially sent by the Philippian church to give Paul their, their love offering to him and for his ministry. And we find it in chapter 4 of Philippians, verse 18. Let's read it. Indeed, says Paul, writing to the Philippians, I have all and I, ha- and I abound. I got your offering for me. And I am full, having received from who? Epaphroditus, the things sent from you, the money, the financial help. A sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Can I pause right there and say, when we give to the work of the Lord, what is it to the Lord? It is a sweet-smelling aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God if it's given for his work. Come on, everybody. We got to see it like God sees it. So every time we give, And I hope all of you do. Every time we give, then God says, ah, look at there. They're giving to my work. What a sweet-smelling aroma. It reaches all the way to heaven. An acceptable sacrifice. Something that is acceptable to God. Well-pleasing to him. But while with Paul, here's Epaphroditus. He brings this love offering. It sounds like it was a, a sizable love offering. It wasn't the first time the Philippian church had helped Paul in his ministry. So they're helping their apostle, they're giving to his ministry, and while Epaphroditus was there, uh, he and Paul hit it off. They had some chemistry. They got along. And eventually, Paul decided to send him back to the Philippians, primarily because they heard he had been gravely ill. So think about this for a minute. Let's, Let's read verse 26. Since he was longing for you all, so Epaphroditus gets there, he gets very sick. He was longing for you all, and he was distressed because you had heard he was sick. For indeed, he was sick almost unto death. Now, we don't know what his sickness was, but it was enough to have almost taken. He almost died. And for whatever reason, the Apostle Paul, who had seen a lot of people healed through his prayers, did not witness a divine healing for Epaphroditus. It seems he weathered it naturally, which Paul attributes to the mercy of God. Verse 27, God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Can I tell you that God has his hand on the dial of the amount of sorrow he allows to come into your life? Now, you can name it and claim it all day long, but I guarantee you, if you're living on this earth, you're going to have some sorrow. You're going to have some sorrow. You know how I know that? Because Jesus said so. In this world, you're going to have tribulation. But fear not, I've overcome the world. Uh, Having some sorrow is a part of living on a sorrowful planet that has fallen. Now, we do receive the joy of the Lord, but we go through sorrowful experiences. People hurt us. Uh, We lose loved ones. Um, We make mistakes that make us sorrowful. Many things cause sorrow, right? 
But Paul said, God had his hand on the dial. He did not let my sorrow become more than I could bear. Lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow, by the mercy of God, he did not let Epaphroditus die. Now, I know what you're thinking. Well, then why do you let my loved one die? You know what? I don't know. But I do know this. He's not going to let you have more sorrow than you can stand. Paul said, God had mercy. There are times in our walk with God, we are brought to our knees to request mercy. Have mercy on me, Lord. How many of you have prayed for mercy lately? You know, Lord, have mercy on me. I just need mercy. I just need a great big fresh dose of the mercy of God. The Bible says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we might obtain mercy and find grace to help in the hour of need. We find ourselves at times in life in circumstances in which we are helpless unless we get a merciful touch from God. I love Lamentations 3.22. It's all marked up in my Bible. Jeremiah writes these words. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed. How many of you can amen that? Through the Lord's mercies, I'm not consumed. Through the Lord's mercies, I'm still alive and walking and talking and praising God and going to church and reading the Bible and praying. Through God's mercies, I got back up again. When I was knocked down, through God's mercies, I stood again. Through God's mercies, I'm still seeking the Lord. It's the mercy of God. We're not consumed. Why? Because his compassions never fail. They are new every year. Is that what he says? Every month. Is that what he says? No, they are new every morning. What's new every morning? His mercies. Great is his faithfulness. Can we say that together? Great is his faithfulness. Let's say it where we can bless God with it. Ready? Great is his faithfulness. Come on, give him a hand of praise. God is faithful. Now, this is what happened with Paul regarding Epaphroditus. The last thing he wanted was for a precious brother in Christ sent to him by a loving, supporting church to die as a result of the trip. It would have added sorrow on top of his already considerable sorrows and thank God for his mercies. And as soon as Epaphroditus began to recover, Paul told him, I'm sending you back home. You are precious cargo. I'm sending you back home. Always think. Now, here's what I want you to catch. Always thinking of others. Paul's always thinking of others. He is always thinking of the needs of others over his own needs. Even though Epaphroditus had come to be such a comfort to Paul, he would rather forego the blessing by sending him back to the church he missed and to the people that also missed him. That's the selflessness of Paul. He says in verse 28, therefore I sent him the more eagerly. I want to send him quickly that when you see him again, you may rejoice and I may be less sorrowful. Now Paul's concern for the, was for the Philippians. So much so that he sent Epaphroditus quickly back home. As soon as he, now he did do something else before he sent him. Are you ready? He wrote the letter to the Philippians we're studying. No doubt his time, that is Epaphroditus' time with the great apostle, 
It left memories of rich conversations he couldn't wait to share with the brethren. I can only imagine spending a few weeks sitting and listening to Paul. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Stop and think of Paul's unselfish attitude. Sitting in a Roman prison, he has no one with him steadily, only a stream of visitors. Epaphroditus had brought with him a kindred spirit to Paul, a man with whom the apostle could converse, whose company he deeply enjoyed, yet the Philippians also missed this treasured man, and they were concerned about him because they had heard through the grapevine that he was so sick he might die. So they're worried about him. So Paul would rather empty himself of this blessing in order to comfort the brethren in Philippi. Which makes me think of the description he's given of Jesus earlier in the same chapter. He says Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and was made in the likeness of men, emptied himself. And Paul has said, let this mind be in you. Now he's practicing what he preached. He said, I'm telling you, Philippians, let this mind be in you. Now let me show you that mind is in me. I'm sending Epaphroditus, though I love fellowshipping with him. I'm getting him out of here. I'm sending him home because you're so worried about him. I want you to rejoice even if it means emptying myself of his fellowship. Now, not only did he send Epaphroditus back, he also sent him with the letter we're now studying. Thank God he sent him back with this joyful letter. Paul amazes me. God on Paul amazes me. But here he, he's got this, this uh, servant from the Philippian church, brings him a love offering, and then he gets sick. First, he, he's hurting. Then he gets fever. Then he's down. Then it's so close he might die. And then Paul says, you know what? I'm feeling moved to write a letter. I'm going to write a letter before I let him go back home. I'm going to write a letter to the Philippian church. And he hammered out the book of Philippians, which is just deep stuff. I mean, you talk about a deep well. Amen? Paul wants to make sure they understand how strong his commitment had been. Because for the work of Christ, he says in verse 30, he came close to death, not regarding his life, to supply what was lacking in your service towards me. So he's telling them Epaphroditus had not been concerned for his own life. You guys sent a guy, you guys sent a man that is extremely Christ-like. Even though he knew he was under the dangerous, watchful eye of Nero, and when he had begun to experience aches and pains and then fever, he had shrugged it off in order to help Paul. As one commentator puts it, on account of Christ's work, he was at death's very door, playing, as it were, the gambler with his life. He said, you know what? I'm emptying myself of my life so that I can minister to this man who's willing to empty himself of his life. Look at what this early church walked in. No wonder they turned the world upside down for Christ. Look at their sacrificial love. Look at their level of commitment. I'm willing to die. I'm willing to give up my life. It's no big deal. It's a joy to me. I'm going to serve the Lord. Nothing's going to get in my way. And if I got to give my life to help a major man of God, I'll give my life to help a major man of God. Come on. 
They took the words of Jesus seriously. By this shall all men know you are my disciples. By how you love one another. You know, I read this, and i got to tell you, it humbles me. It's very humbling to me. I don't know if it's humbling you, but I think, am I anywhere near this? Are, are, are we anywhere? Are we close to this level of commitment? What, what, if, you know, what if we were thrust into their context for a week, two weeks, a month? How would we fare? Would we complain? Would we blame God for our circumstances? Would we say, why'd you let me get in circumstances like these? You could have done something else, Lord. Why'd you let me end up in jail? Why did you let me end up sick like this? I was bringing a man of God, his love offering, and here I am sick and almost dead. Where are you, God? They didn't do any of that. They said, if I die, that's, I'm ready. But I'm going to serve, and I'm going to love. Such a sacrificial giving spirit is rare in our day of self this and self that. May the Lord help all of us to learn to walk in the love that Jesus, Timothy, and Epaphroditus displayed. Amen. Can we stand together tonight? Praise the Lord. How many of you got something out of this tonight? Isn't it good? Amen. Amen, amen. Let's go to the Lord. Father, I just thank you right now. The Lord, we see these examples. And, and Lord, if we just stop and even think about what we're reading, it, it just blows us away. Where they walk, the level of commitment, their sacrifice, their love, their spiritual depth. Lord, only you can get us there. Only you can bring us to this place. No one else can, Lord. We just, can we just lift our hands to the Lord and say, Lord, help me to grow the way they grew. Help me to be more like Jesus with every passing day. Help me, Lord, to be selfless instead of selfish, giving instead of taking. Bring me there, Lord, by the Spirit of God. In Jesus' mighty name. Lifting our hands, let's pray.